I look at Valent, you know, Valentino and Mark when I was at the ranch in 2014. That, that famous trip, which you, you can read yeah. so much about. <laughs> and it, you know, it was literally right after Mizano. Um, and, you know, Valentino had just won, Mark had crashed. Um, you know, Mark wearing the leathers that had still the crash marks on it at the ranch. And I missed those days because I, I saw a little kid not that he was little then, he was still obviously a MotoGP champion, but you, you saw a very raw kid looking up to a hero. And it's sad to see how that relationship has fallen apart. And, and I don't know that it was individuals, the athletes, making that the bad. I think it, it's always the entourages that make it worse. Welcome to take one of Last on the Breaks. This week we have, as you can see, another kind of lockdown. We're all getting a bit more out of that now episode. And it is with a true legend. Joining me from Wild and you, Matt Dunn, this week, we have Supercross legend and expert, true expert MotoGP fan, Chad Reed. So what are we talking to Chad about this week, Matt? Yes, hello, hi. I'm I'm quite sad that this is actually the last episode we're filming in our respective sort of it is. UK homes. We can't homes. promise that you won't see this again, but yeah. this is the last time we'll be recording some fresh stuff. Exactly. So if you are watching on YouTube, take it in behind us, these views, the wallpaper, Enjoy Fran's it. beautiful plants in, in the parents' garden and all that. So. Grandma knitted those. <laughs> So, Chad Reed, what are we talking about with him today? Well, Chad, fresh off the back of retiring uh, from motorcycle racing full-time, Chad joins us to discuss what it's actually like racing with no fans, because, of course, he's been doing that over the last month. The guys from Supercross had a, a very intense schedule. Whilst we're here, thank you very much to Shane from Supercross, who helped setting this one up. I really appreciate you, Shane. Big thumbs up. Uh, and Chad... Well, one day so- I'll meet you too, Shane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and <laughs> one thing we did actually really get onto with Chad is different eras and also how relationships between riders change over time which actually was a real interesting topic from a guy who's got a lot of insight into the world of riders not just because of his own experience as a racer but because as we mentioned MotoGP expert he's got a lot of contacts (laughs) yeah he genuinely has like the proper kind Uh, so that I think that's an interesting chat that we go through as well and I think most people probably know especially in the social media era now uh, you will have seen a lot of our guys going to supercross events when they've been able to in between I think everyone in our paddock who you know rides or even just looks after those who rides is a huge fan of supercross most of us that are as well (laughs) who work behind the scenes Um, and I think Chad is the kind of figure where as a lot of our younger riders now grew up with Valentino as a point of reference and one of the big legends in the sport, Chad Reed is a similar kind of uh, level yeah. for, like if, for if, those guys. Exactly. If they were, if they were fans of, they were obviously fans of MotoGP growing up, but they're also fans of Supercross. They would have been watching Chad Reed at the top of his game fighting Carmichael, Ricky, uh, Ricky Carmichael, and James Stewart. But they're also watching Valentino win as well. Yeah. Exactly. So 20 year career nearly. That sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Two time champion in the premier supercross class. Uh, and he also has the most 450 class podiums in the history of the sport. So 
quite a good CV there, some good expertise, uh, but also as well, like we said, expert MotoGP fan, lots of knowledge about our side of the fence as well. Yeah, so you'll probably see that from very much the first minute. I do actually bring it up and say how much of a a fan he clearly is, and he sort of brushes it off, bless him. Now, this isn't actually the podcast for Chad Reed fans who are wanting to hear all the details about what he's up to next. Uh, Those sorts of things, I'm sure there'll be plenty of articles and stuff you can go and find out for yourselves. Uh, But with Chad, um, there's plenty of parallels to be drawn between not just his riding career, but also everything that we see week in, week out in MotoGP as well. Absolutely. So before we get going then with uh, the interview, we usually have a question of the week for you. This week is no different. This one was a bit of a challenge because it's more (laughs) chatting with a huge fan of the sport as well as someone who's into bikes. Um, So we're like, oh, what should we go for? In the end, we've gone for what is your favorite era of motorsport, be it maybe Supercross, MotoGP, Superbikes, the 75 million people that used to pack into Brands Hatch. It's a good British (laughs) meme for you. Uh, So what's your favorite era of uh, those different sports and ours? What about you, Matt? What would you say for that? Well, actually, funny you mentioned that that fateful weekend of Brands Hatch in 2000 uh, the late 90s and early 2000s was my favourite era of motorsport I was a big superbike fan growing up the domestic era uh, domestic scene and the world scene um, funny lately I've been listening to podcasts with uh, from Moto America and they had Ben Bostrom on it who was one of my favourite riders uh, growing up tweeting about that <laughs> yeah so those guys all that era we spoke to that's why we wanted to speak to Neil Hodgson Neil Hodgson was one of my heroes growing up in the superbike class as well and that era there's yeah for me Love, a, love it when Twitter sort of delves into a um, a big conversation about what it was like in the 90s, the retro numbers, liveries and everything. It's just, <laughs> it, it makes my heart sing, Fran, basically. What about you? <laughs> you literally sound like back in the day you were riding and now yeah. you're like 40 when actually and like, oh, I was I've retired. When actually I was more like eight years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, my, my, I've got really weird niche answers for the era always. My favourite season of MotoGP probably is 2013 because I loved the young pretender and the way you could literally see Lorenzo respond to that throughout the season and the drama of collarbone breaks and all of that. Loved 2016, all the different winners we had in a row as well. F1, I'm like 2012, 88, 76. Again, really specific. (laughs) But that's interesting uh, you mentioned 2013 because that's what comes up with chat. It is, yeah, 2013, 2014, those kind of early years of Marquez in the Premier class. Some good good things there, I think. So, yeah, I think it should be it should be a good, interesting chat for all of you, I think. And we are right around the corner as well, we must mention, from beginning another era. Hmm. A new decade, a new decade of MotoGP first race. Oh, technically that's true. Yeah. That's really scary, actually, because yeah. they didn't race in part. Genuinely, the start of the decade. Absolutely. So uh, the the actual end of the conversation with Chad uh, is all about an insight into uh, what well the rider market, that sort of situation. He absolutely loves that part, the development too, and things we could be seeing as we get going. But. That's also kind of where we start at the beginning of the conversation too. What racing is like with no fans and with it being very quiet. As you hear from Chad, he could even hear his wife in the grandstands above him before he was starting his races. So that's where we're going to start today's show and we hope you enjoy it. Chad, it's great to speak to you. Thank you. Yeah, How are you guys doing? Yeah, yeah, very well. How's, uh, how was your weekend out on the lake? Weekend in the lake was awesome, actually. It was uh, it was nice. Just It was weird. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> 
it, it, amongst uh, amongst quarantine, you would think it's not too weird, but you do seven races over three weeks. You kind of get used to doing two race, races a weekend and or two races a week, and then suddenly you turn that off, and then you're like, oh, shit, what do I do now? That's hilarious. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Hey, how, how are you after uh, Salt Lake City and that? Well, you guys have a tent schedule already, but that was just, that was mad. How, have you recovered yet? Yeah, I was fine. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Salt Lake or Utah, but it's a beautiful place, you mm. know, like in the mountains. And it's kind of like you got a bit of both. you got the mountains, the lakes, the snow, and then – 20 minutes down where we raced it's kind of more like desert and it's 15 degrees hotter and it's like hell <laughs> <laughs> hell on earth just all your skins but well you look quite tanned actually i can't tell whether it's the uh if it's the uh the yeah. camera or not but you're looking pretty bad where are you in your house at the moment then Where's, what is this Where's i'm this actually you... uh i'm at the race shop so um ah. yeah like basically you know doing doing everything and then wrapping up and retiring so we're basically Finally, I got two seconds. I unloaded the semi, uh, got kids' bikes ready, got the rearranged the race shop, and so yeah, I'm Brilliant. already out of things to do. Brilliant, I bet. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, uh, okay. Well, let's let's get started with actual like proper podcasts and stuff, shall we? Um, really wanted to, to speak to you. I didn't actually realize this. Done a lot of research on you in the last week. You and me share a birthday, fifteenth of March, and you're the only famous person I know who has that birthday. <laughs> So oh, wow, that's, that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, not bad. Uh, random fact. But um, yeah, one last ride. Awesome. Um, so happy to see you sort of, well, you were come, really coming strong at the end of the little season. But uh, how was that for you? Got to ask. It was very, it was weird. Weird and different, exciting and sad all at once. Like just so many different emotions because I came into the season, I was injured, I was hurt. And then uh, so kind of like being hurt and, and knowing it's your last run. I, I kind of just gave everything I had to the fans, you know, like my every ounce of time, I basically was signing autographs, spending time with them. Um, where normally you kind of like you do your, your allotted time, your one hour window of, you know, kind of, and then other than that, you kind of give them a, a high and a wave and a high five here and there. Um, and then you're looking at timesheets and you're looking for those tents and things like that. And the beginning of the year, I just kind of ignored that part because it just wasn't there for me. I was I wasn't riding good. I wasn't feeling good. I wasn't I wasn't healthy. I wasn't fit. So I thought, well, here I am doing my last run. Do I stay home and get fit, or do I go home and give my everything to the people that have kind of given me everything over the last twenty years? So that was the choice I made, and and then obviously the world went on pause and. Uh, we got kind of like got to do a full reversal, you know, like there was no fans. Um, so then, you know, looking at the timesheets, looking at those tents here and there, looking at, you know, analyzing video and the data and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I kind of just put my focus there and each and every weekend I got a little better, a little better and, and finished off with a 10th, which in all honesty is not that exciting but it was my best ride of the year and it's something to you know something to end a end a career on I mean it has been quite a career so I feel like a 10th is not going to be the overriding thing that everyone's going to think of Mm -hmm. when they think of you and also a pretty crazy situation to be making that decision to retire in but first off obviously we're going to be racing again soon in Jerez and we will also have fans there what is that experience like? Because obviously behind the scenes, I'm sure there are a few things where it's a bit easier because as much as you love the love, it's like you can just focus, like you said, on what you're doing. But how is it racing in such a completely different environment, especially because Supercross is usually so packed with everyone so close to you all as well? 
It, it is. And, and obviously I've, I've been to my share of MotoGP events. Um, I, I think it's going to be really strange. It's, it's going to be, uh, I don't like to call it a new normal because I don't accept the new normal at <laughs> all. Um, but it's going to be, I think that it, it's for different riders. I think it's going to be different feelings, you know, like, cause in my opinion, you have, you have people that, you know, they're good during the day. They're good on qualifying and practice. Um, but when the green light goes out for, in your case, um, you got, you got guys that the cream always rises to the top and, and when you don't have the fans and all that kind of stuff for me, I'm the opposite. Like, obviously I'm a huge Valentino fan and I watch Valentino's career closely and, you know, Valentino is always there, you know, the odd race, he'll be good and he'll be at the top of the charts, but it's rare that you see him at the top of the charts, even at the highest point of his career. Um, it wasn't something that, that was on his priority list. It was always finding that, you know, the race pace and things like that. And that, that's how it's always been for me. And maybe that's our generation. Um, and so when you turn the lights out in, in the, in the case of Supercross, we do opening ceremonies, they turn the lights back on and it's like the body goes, okay, let's do this. Mm. We're about to drop the gates, turn the lights out kind of thing. And, and then, so your body switches on and it just has this, you know, 20 plus years of, of, of accessing that muscle memory. And so when we were doing races, we were doing races, not at the nighttime, they're all, um, you know, any, obviously because we were doing races in the June. So now daylight savings. So even when we were racing like that six, seven, eight o'clock at night, it was still daylight. Mm. Um, so it was really strange in, in that aspect of things. Um, but I will say that there was a lot of things that I loved, uh, the privacy, and that having my wife and my friends and my mechanics and things around me, it was kind of like I, like I said, I overexerted myself on the fan side of things at the beginning of the season. And then towards the end, I felt like I got to almost block it all out. We literally had, uh, in, in, you know, in Supercross we have, we work out of our semis, not garages. Um, and so basically it was all blacked out. And it was really weird. Like you didn't have to answer nobody. Media weren't allowed to the tent. Oh, yeah. um, so, so there was like all these weird restrictions. Like you're kind of like, I don't know, you feel like you want to be able to just like talk to all your friends and, and because obviously you, your family and your friends are the paddock these days. Um, but we really couldn't interact with any of them. So it was, it was strange. Yeah. It was, but, but then also when I say strange, I don't necessarily mean strange in a terrible way or a good way or a bad way or a great way. It was just different. And that was what I think you guys are probably going to have to, you know, you're going to experience that as well. And your guys setting is so different than, than ours, you know, like you guys, it's such a huge facility, you know, like supercross at a baseball or a soccer, you know, like the best way to describe it to a MotoGP fan is a soccer stadium, um, or football. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so like basically, you know, think of that and then all of us just put in the parking lot. So everything's really close. Um, and then obviously for us, I always describe supercross as being like a, in a fishbowl. So you are mm. the fish and then everybody's just looking in on you and and obviously that that atmosphere that the vibe the electricity of the fans being so close to us and our motorcycles not being as loud as moto gp and we're not doing you know 200 plus kilometers an hour so that experience is different where you guys maybe will feel something different in the fact that like 
the bike's so noisy, the green light's gone out and the racing side by side, you, you guys might get a more realistic race scenario than what we probably do. Um, I would think pre-race and post-race is where MotoGP riders are going to experience the weirdness yeah yeah because yeah, yeah. especially with like the lack of the lack of media at the moment and, and everything like that that's going to be a major change for them all the sponsorship commitments they can't be shaking hands with this and this person putting their arm around this person having a photo and all that sort of thing it seems absolutely crazy something i wanted to touch upon which you mentioned there um the mindset sort of shift that you naturally get in your, your guys' situation normally when you have the opening ceremonies the lights are on the fans are screaming and you, you said your body sort of realizes like yeah it's go time um is how much did that how long did that take to get your head around that new version of it where it's sort of everything's kind of quiet and then the gate drops and it's burst into life or did it take a while possibly seven races yeah right <laughs> yeah it, like it was the... it felt straight well it felt strange because they were dropping the gates and we were going you know elbow to elbow in the first turn and it just it's kind of like you're like whoa why are you guys so serious oh we're racing you know <laughs> like it was it really was a strange weird feeling and you kind of just i feel like mentally you had to switch it on like you had to think about switching it on rather than lights going out you know everything kind of gets the calm before the storm um all right let's let's go to the grid in your case and and then you know you do the festivities and then um you know and then things get real when you're right away for the you know the site lap before they go the green you know green light out um and i just think that 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 was probably the hardest thing for me was getting used to being able to mentally turn it on rather Mm -hmm. than relying on 20 plus years of body memory because the closest memory. thing i guess yeah, we've yeah. got to that is everyone whenever when it first came out like there'll be no fans or media everyone was like oh it's a bit like qatar then because qatar hasn't got the massive attendance that other races have but if you go to qatar it's still got that sort of it's it's well it's got three factors which still make it very sort of adrenaline heavy it's the first race of the season everyone's been testing and want to prove it, what they've got etc but then also you've got the lights which obviously you guys know all about. But then you, there are a lot of fans which group along the grandstand uh, by the grid. So they are sort of cheering and stuff. There's the uh, the uh, announcer of the circuit who you can hear over the tannoy, things like that. So there is that atmosphere there. It's not like this is, you know, some people saying it's going to be just like Qatar. It is going to be quite different, I think. So that's that's useful for, I think, I don't know if any riders actually listen to this, but maybe, <laughs> maybe they'll get an idea of what it could be like. Who knows? I think, and like we were, you know, like, you guys obviously grid out quite differently and you, you know, you physically have, you know, typically what most of the team, you know, so you probably got anywhere from let's say five to 10, you know, working staff around an individual rider, um, you know, and then take into consideration of the fan walk on the grid and everything like that. And so now you're not going to have fans. So you're basically again each individual and I'm sure I don't know your schedule and I haven't heard, but, going off of everything else i'm sure they're minimizing you know the people around the riders and you know they're probably going to cut back let's say everybody's allowed out there probably only maybe now two you know two chief mechanics are out there and maybe the engineer or data guy or something like that um and so that's just going to be different for them you know and it's it's the interaction like for us when we're sitting on the starting line there's 22 of us and we're pretty much elbow to elbow and we're waiting on a TV slot like like you guys are in a lot of cases. And so you're sitting there 
and suddenly you're you're having a conversation with your guy next to you on your left and your right and and you can hear the whole grid mm. and then no and then the, it was that was the surreal thing for me was how quiet like the whole stadium you know because we had no stadium announces um i could literally hear my wife talking in the stands and i'm like yeah that's my wife <laughs> yeah. so, <laughs> so it was funny and so that and i'm sure you they're gonna kind of witness that same that same feeling feeling is is what we did and you can't really it's hard to explain until you you feel it after feeling something that you felt for so long I can imagine that's going to take a bit of adjusting to. And as well, like we said earlier, Supercross, obviously, you guys have always had a bit more of a kind of punishing schedule in terms of how many races you have in a shorter amount of time that makes up your season. This year, even more so in the last few months. Just crazy. Can't even imagine. But now our guys as well, obviously, we've got a few back-to-back races and at the same track. Do you think that's going to ha- add an even another different element to the added challenge of this season? Because it's just going to be relentless. And we've already seen like Andrea Davizioso just hit his collarbone in training. Those are the things that are going to start to mount up, aren't they? Like being perfect for that amount of time. How do you deal with that racing like constantly? Yeah, yeah I mean, when, when you're racing twice a week, you know, like we were doing Sundays and, and Wednesdays. Um, you know, we were in one location, which we're never in one location. Um, but you also, so your it, track changes, doesn't it? You, they, they cor- tore up the track and then made a different configuration, right? Correct. Yeah. So like, uh, like I, I think, you know, like for the back to back, I think obviously Sunday to Wednesday was our shortest turnaround. So then they would do minor things like things like literally switching it around backwards. So one weekend, <laughs> Uh, I think on a, I don't remember if it was a Sunday or, or a Wednesday, I believe it was a Sunday, but we raced and it was muddy. Like, so it rained. Huh. And so we raced this muddy, nasty track. And then we came back Wednesday and it was the same track, but backwards. And it was just really bizarre how all that kind of <laughs> worked out. Um, I don't know. Are you guys, are you doing your normal schedule, like the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or are you guys condensing it down to one day? Uh, It's the the normal Friday, Saturday, Sunday kind of track action we should have. And then we have one test before the first race in Haref on the Wednesday. Yeah. But the race weekends should be pretty standard. They're just closer together and they're stacked up a bit more. It's interesting. I'm surprised that you guys are still doing a three-day format um when everybody else that's going back is is seemingly condensing their schedule um which obviously helps when you start going back to back weekends um you guys are obviously not going to have to deal with flyaways anytime soon um you know so jumping you know jumping around in europe is basically like jumping around america you know yeah it's, genuinely you know, <laughs> like a, a lot of the flights though you're going over you know you're not you're not crossing state borders, you're crossing uh, countries um, for the most part. So that part I can relate to. It's not very difficult, I don't think. Um, it, it, from a writing standpoint, I think that the the setup crews, you know, setting up weekend after weekend after weekend will, will become challenging. Um, I think of my Australian friends, you know, Valentina's <laughs> crew. And I think, uh, you know, the, the quarantine situation that Australia has um, and then you guys running back-to-back races. So I, I think that, you know, when I think of you guys going back to back races, I think the riders have got the easy thing for the most part. 
a lot of the MotoGP guys will probably jump on private planes and, you know, and, and jump here and there and it'll be quite easy. Um, I think of Brent and Briggsy and, and mm-hmm. the boys that, that are going to have to probably base themselves out of Europe, which they probably haven't done in 20, 25 years. Um, so to, I, yeah, I actually think, it, I think that they're going to have fun. Like you're, when you're forced to do something, you make the most of it. And those guys do that, you know, they're yeah, especially playing those golf in multiple. <laughs> yeah. Correct. Right. And, and so I think, uh, yeah, in some cases it's going to be really weird, but then in some cases I think it's going to present, you know, a, an atmosphere that allows you to maybe take it on, take it in, um, and enjoy it a little bit more. Oh. I, from a, from a writing standpoint, like when I see like, like for us, we have, you know, we go racing and we condense it into one day. And so therefore like all our media, uh, commitments and things are really only once or twice a day. Um, where MotoGP, you guys have three days, and from a writing standpoint, it's a lot of debrief, you know, like you're debriefing with a team. Then you're debriefing outside your pit box or or in the hospitality areas and things like that. And and I would imagine that that's going to change massively. Um, and so from a, a writing standpoint, those guys are probably going to have a lot of freedom, um, a lot of a lot more free time to think about, you know, settings and bikes and tracks and and all that kind of stuff. So I think the writers are probably going to love that part of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet, I bet. That's, that's that, interesting. The whole dynamic is going to be absolutely wild. So different, like nothing we've ever experienced before. From the quiet, the quietness of the, you mentioned like the hearing Ellie from the stands, your wife, think, and, and the kids, etc. <laughs> Even that thing is going to be absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm sure everybody listening can very, very much tell that, Chad, you're probably the biggest MotoGP expert outside of MotoGP <laughs> paddock that we've had. I didn't know about on, expert, fan. <laughs> no, but dude, everything, like you're talking as though, as though you should probably be hosting this podcast rather than us to be honest Um, um, so we want to ask you because in our research I found that lots of journalists have gone to you for quotes and stuff uh, over the years about certain topics certain events and things like that but I've never I've never I've not been able to find anything about your actual story of MotoGP how uh, how you fell in love with it your experience with it what's the first race you went to so really want to know about that where did your love affair with MotoGP start I mean my love affair with MotoGP is is goes way back to Mick Doohan, really, you know. Um, but more than anything, I think Australians are rev heads at heart and love motorsport. Um, <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, when Gardner came on and my dad, you know, m- more my dad than I, um, but dad was always watching, uh, you know, the GPs. And I, I grew up in a place called Newcastle, which is probably an hour and a half, two hours from Eastern Creek. Um, and so obviously there used to be MotoGP races there, um, and, and things like that. So like dad, dad went to those events. I was too little at the time. Um, the first MotoGP event that I ever went to was 19, actually it was 97. It was the year Mick, it was the year Mick crashed in the first turn after, like he was leading, probably had five, six second lead and lost the front in the first turn. Um, and I just remember just loving it, you know, the sound, uh, the atmosphere. And then as a, as a motorcycle enthusiast, racing motorcycles, uh, I always wanted to take on the world and nobody was doing it on a motocross bike. And so I thought, well, shit, my ticket out of the country and to take on the world is MotoGP because Gardner doing Maladin, Gobert, um, I'm leaving people out on the world superbike side of it, but just talking MotoGP, um, 
it that was that was the route if you want you know and obviously Maladin and Gobert were two you know obviously seven eight years older than I am um but as a little kid growing up on a motocross bike those guys were very much a big name in motocross um and then they switched to road racing and and that was the trend and so I'm like that's it I'm getting a road race bike um and I was I was a Suzuki athlete and back in those days the two you know the 250 production bike was uh was the was the big starter like everybody got one of those in Australia, I didn't even know if they call it worldwide, but it was like the 250 Prodi. And <laughs> I just remember it. And I'm like, all right, call the Suzuki guys. And I'm like, hey, I want one of these bikes. And then they're like, oh, okay. You know, I'm 16 years old. Talk to your mom, dad. I talk to mom. No, hard no. <laughs> not, not, a, not a no, it's a hard no. They're, they're too dangerous. And I'm like, they're too dangerous. Yeah, look, what I, look what I do. And it's just so funny when I think about my mom and dad saying that road racing was too dangerous mm. because of the speed. And yet, look what I did as a profession. Yeah. <laughs> but were, you, were you already on track for that then? I wasn't. So I never was allowed. And, and so to, still to this day, I've never actually done a track day and gone out and done it. But that just was going to be one of our questions. <laughs> yeah. So, but just a massive fan. I love, um, I love MotoGP and where it's at in the fact that like um, a lot of the people are my friends. You know, like I, over the years I've become really close and, and spent time around them. So when I do get to go in the garages, um, I do get, you know, access to certain things, and I, I I'm able to see like I'm, they're not pushing me out and hiding me when certain things get opened, and so therefore. I'm, you know, like I'm a trusted insider in, in some cases and they let me in and see it. And I just love the, you know, how, how special it is. It's all one-off stuff. I grew up in a world of motocross, which there's really cool stuff, but everything's production based, you know, and MotoGP is just 100%, you know, prototype machines. And that, that gets my, that gets my attention and I love it. It is pretty cool. Like you say, they're genuinely like you can come up with anything. And as long as it's in the rules, you can be a world first. <laughs> time you use it. But OK, so, so your mum's like, no, then, despite the yeah. fact that you weren't exactly like, I don't know what's quite sedate. You weren't exactly fishing in your spare <laughs> time. Um, but so did you not get tempted to go back to it afterwards? Because I imagine now you feel like a little bit more in charge of your own decisions. Was there not a point a few years later where it's like, well, I'm doing it now? <laughs> yeah, well, yes and no, because then obviously my route, you know, like I was fortunate enough to to get the opportunity to go spend. I spent a year in Europe and did the World Grand Prix, the motocross championships there in 2001 and and then obviously that was a stepping stone for me to ultimately getting to my life, you know, my childhood dreams of coming to American racing supercross. So at that point you're pot committed and, and I was, you know, already down the road and, 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 and early two thousands, uh, motorcycles in in general i know moto gp is still viewed as as being big but i still don't look at it as like the early 2000 was just the mega of mm -hmm. of motorsport in general and so being supercross motocross um moto gp or formula one like we were we were all up there you know like as far as like i was a yamaha athlete when valentino went there and so i got to do a lot of things in america um over the moto gp weekends in laguna seca and in uh, indianapolis um interacting on on you know the, the yellow and black theme of the you know the, oh. the old school thing and, awesome. and so that so that was really cool as as a as a child 
um, a childhood hero of Valentino. I had his replica AGV when I was 15 years old. Um, so yeah, to kind of to be announced to the crowd second to last, only to Valentino, um, was was pretty special. So they're all memories that I'll I'll you know, remember forever. All right. So those early 2000s, okay, and in the re- when before we actually I think before we even contacted you to ask, I think this was the spawning of like, oh my goodness, should we should we try and Skype Chad Reed when he's finished with Supercross? Johnny Louch for everybody listening, trainer of um, uh, of many uh, motocross guys <laughs> and John Hopkins as well. He put on an Instagram story a photo of uh, Brad Pitt somebody else and i think he tagged you in it and i saw this and i was like what was it about and he said oh these were like great memories laguna seca 2005 were you alive then (laughs) yeah i was (laughs) i was born in 1994 but i was nine years old yeah (laughs) so um but what what was going on there then what's the story laguna seca 2005 like you're with what was brad pitt then the biggest actor in the world at that point must have been Oh, easily. And I mean, arguably, he could probably swing, you know, a, a movie or two. It would get him right back there, right? 100%. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, yeah, I want to say it was 05. Um, might have been, yeah, 05. It could have even been 06. Either either one, it was both years, Nikki won. Um, and so, yeah, just, and really that's where I come back to, like, just motorcycling being at the highest point, you know, and us, you know, like our weekend, um, I think I raced on the Saturday and flew in on the, on the Saturday night and enjoyed the event and, you know, did Yamaha festivities and, and all those kinds of things. And then they had the Red Bull, um, right there on turn one, um, the big Red Bull, uh, you know, hospitality area and obviously Brad Pitt and all the celebrities were in there. And it was just, it was just awesome, you know, just a great time to be, be a part of it. And back in those days, I think it was, you know, you didn't have the social media and the crazy. And I think mm-hmm. that whenever MotoGP riders, from my experience, whenever they come to America, their, their fan interaction is, is different for them because I see, I've hung out in Europe with them. I've hung out in America with them and it's, it's, it's massively different. Um, and so back in those days, you know, Nicky winning his first MotoGP race and coming up to the Red Bull thing and partying and, and then, you know, soon thereafter Valentino showing up and these are all things that you could probably never do today. You know, a Marquez or Valentino going and hanging out with the general public and partying is, is probably a little more challenging. It does seem to, yeah, it's, it's a little bit crazy when you look at like, Valentino in Italy, even at the pre-event, was it last year in Tavulia? Oh, well, uh, everything we... seems like one yeah. now. Yeah, when he rode through the town, obviously it's his hometown and everything else, <laughs> but it's still a small town. <laughs> and it was literally like some sort of religious event. It was crazy. Everyone just loves him so much and so much interest. And then in the States, like there is a lot of people that come to Kota. They love the guys. They, you know, hang out, wait for autographs, go to the fan events and stuff. But it just seems a little bit like everyone can breathe a little bit more. Yeah. You can go and have dinner in Austin and know that you're not going to have like 25 people surrounding your table. <laughs> um, but is it also like that kind of period you said you loved a lot? Was there something special about that for you, like being as you were in your career at the same time as you had guys like Nikki winning and just all of that atmosphere and F1 as well. That's, that's an interesting one to add to it that you mentioned before. I'm not sure how you'd balance that out. It just was raw, you know, like I think it was, it was, you were seeing a rawer version of, of athletes than what you do 
today. Um, I think today that there's there's a lot of uh, people have access to them in in weird ways. Um, everybody can have an opinion on them and access them, and 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 if the athlete wants to see it, you can see good and bad things about you today. Um, where I think back then it was kind of just people a little bit more real, a little bit more um, open. Um, not that they're not real today because they're the same people. Um, but life is different. And I think that that's probably the biggest thing that's, that's changed that I've seen. And, and the popularity of, of, you know, of an individual like a Mark or, or, or Valentino being the two of the biggest guys in our sport. You look at, I look at Valentino, you know, Valentino and Mark when I was at the ranch in 2000 and, 14, that that famous trip, which you, you can read yeah. so much about. <laughs> and it, you know, it was literally right after Mizano. Um, and, you know, Valentino had just won. Mark had crashed. Um, you know, Mark wearing the leathers that had still the crash marks on it at the ranch. And I missed those days because I, I saw a little kid. Not that he was little then. He was still <laughs> obviously a MotoGP champion. But... You, you saw a very raw kid looking up to a hero and it's sad to see how that relationship has fallen apart. And, and I don't know that it was individuals, the athletes making that the bad. I think it, it's always the entourages that make it worse. Um, I've, I've heard you say that, that before. Myself. You know, I lived it with yeah. Ricky Carmichael. I lived it with James Stewart. And I think that deep down, uh, as a writer, I always had massive respect for the individuals involved, but it was always the people around you that created, you know, created the the, the drama. Um, but it is. I, I feel blessed that I got to witness that before what we see today, um, because that was really cool. And the photos, the memories, and and you know the festivities that we got to do was really fun. So one that almost. Go on, Sorry, I was going to say that almost makes me think of like when you break up with someone and your friends are <laughs> always the ones who are like, no, he's trash. Get rid of him. Never talk to him again. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the people actually maybe in the middle is like, well, you know, that's sad. We'll go our separate ways. It's fine. But yeah, yeah I'd forgotten almost in the haze of the last few years of really bitter rivalry that that's how it had been. And like at Kota when Mark won his first race, I think there's the Valentino doffing his cap yeah. and all of that stuff. That was there's some great stuff in those couple of years. But yeah. now you got you have got someone who is going through the positive version of that, which is Fabio, and mm-hmm. he sort of almost seems well definitely uh, based on last year and his personality, everything you see him on social media, he's got that similar special source, I guess, if, if you want of a better word that that Mark <laughs> and Valentino that Mark and Valentino almost have. But he gets to still have that kind of relationship with Valentino. He still, I think he posted recently a, a photo of him and Rossi as well on his Instagram, and he's still sort of completely starry-eyed with him that whole time. And like, what, what do you make of that? Is that quite similar? I, I don't think that Fabio and Valentino are are in jeopardy of that relationship falling apart. I think that Valentino is, you know, within a year or two of stepping away. Um, so I don't know that that drastically changes. I think more the, the, you know, Fabio, cause I see, obviously I follow both guys on Instagram and you see that Fabio is still that bubbly young, you know, young kid that doesn't have the pressure of the world on him yet. Um, and so he's able to make comments and, and, you know, I see it on, on, on Mark's page. I see, you know, he kind of bounces around. He's friendly with everybody. He loves it. Um, that will change. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? And, and I, 
<laughs> yeah, weird. I don't know. I think that, uh, you know, it's just, it's the way the world works. I think uh, I, I've been guilty of it myself. Um, if things come full circle. And I think that, uh, I think Mark will have a closer reality of why him and Valentino's thing fell apart, um, you know, sooner than later. If, if Fabio can really take it to Mark um, in, in how he's supposed to, um, I do see that, that that falls apart and and then Mark gets maybe a different view of um, how things played out, um, you know, with him and Valentino. So, uh, but first we need to, you know, I think that it's, it's all well and good to do it on your rookie season. Let's, let's see what happens and how you back it up in year two. <laughs> That sounds like really laying down the challenge there. <laughs> but no, it is super interesting, all of this stuff. Like one thing I thought was really interesting in the press conference somewhere, it might've been at Silverstone when Rins beat Marquez by that tiny, tiny margin over the line. And there's just a little bit more in the conversation between them. And you can tell like, yeah, you've said that as a joke and it's been smiled at but in a very different way to kind of laughing it off in that kind of manner. I find these things always so fascinating. And now we have, obviously we have a few veterans like Valentino, Davizioso, et cetera, but we also have a lot of younger riders on the grid and we still have yet to see what on earth is going to happen with their rivalries, relationships and what the paddock is going to look like in like five, eight years time. And what's interesting is, is that the, the generation is changing too, you know, like probably one thing I miss about racing and I come from the Valentino era um, of you're either with me or against me. And that is something that I really only learned this year is I always had, I could go, you know, like when I was at Yamaha, it, you know, it was, it used to be, it's not so much anymore. It's still in MotoGP, but the Yamaha versus Honda thing is real. Oh, you're yeah. Yamaha, you're Yamaha. When you're Honda, you're Honda. And so when I went from Yamaha to Honda, I see it was seamless. I went from Yamaha to people that I looked at and I hated. And I just <laughs> was like, I want to kill them. I want to beat them so bad. And then of the flip of a switch, you, you, you become on the inner circle and you work with them hand in hand. You tell them all your secrets and everything just works. And then when you leave, you're like, ah, screw those guys. I hate those guys. You know, like it's just, that's the generation where I feel like now, like I think of a Rins, a Jack Miller, a Fabio, um, they're like all best friends, even uh, Maverick, like they're seemingly all very close. And that is what I see in Supercross as well. And at what point does it get real? And that person is taking food off the table or taking bonuses or taking a seat away from you do you go, okay, this is, this is real. He's my friend, but you know what? Like it's time to, to get serious. But I, I haven't seen that shift. You know, it is a different, a different way of thinking. And maybe, maybe they're able to do it differently than what maybe they've learned from the things that we did and, and something's (laughs) missing, something's changed. I don't know. Um, But it is, it's, I, I look at the younger guys in motocross and supercross and I also see it um, you know, through my friends with with Jack and and everybody like that. It's funny because maybe those guys are at the are the, the thinking about the stats the stats in their career and stuff. They're still at the stage where they're not quite fighting for a championship yet. Maybe that's the difference. They're getting their first wins. Rins obviously had two last year, so his mates can be like, "Yeah, well job for you, mate. Great job." And then like Jack's still on the verge of getting his second win. He was getting podiums. Maybe maybe the championship fighting for that is the difference. I don't know. 
Jack has the killer instinct in him, I think, you know, I think, uh, I think that the Jack is my friend. Mm -hmm. I've been very, I've been very critical of him behind closed doors of like what he's achieved over the last couple of years. I think he's better than that. And I think that the Jack that we've seen towards the end of 19 was exciting for me to see that he'd finally grown up Mm -hmm. He'd finally and not grown up in life, just growing up on the racetrack. Cause that's really all that matters. What you do away from the racetrack is what you do. Um, but, but what, how you're perceived and your results and your, your, your everything on the racetrack. Um, and I think that that's why Ducati has put their eggs in that basket. Um, he has shown that he has a, something a little different. Um, maybe it's something upstairs, not quite right, but Hey, it's enough <laughs> at this point. <laughs> I love Jack. Um, Don't worry. It's perfectly obvious that's said positively. (laughs) And so I, it excites me to see Jack getting that opportunity as he's coming in, you know, like I don't, I think a year ago he wasn't deserving of this opportunity. And I think now he's, I think he's ready. And I really do think that he has uh, the killer instinct to to take it to a mark um, at the, you know, at a level of, of racing, you know, does he have the skill and does he have, the ability to do it week after week, we're yet to find out. But I do think mentally he has that killer killer instinct to go get it done. That's cool. I'm really Definitely excited. something we were going to ask about, but yeah. there you go. I'm excited Top to listen to this again in the in the future. Like to listen to this back in about six months' time or in the 2021 season <laughs> to tell you what Jack's doing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so something I wanted to pick up from that is about those those guys. I think you did. A, it was the Gypsy Tales podcast you did a couple of years back, right? You talked about how a secret of your success is loving what you do, which you really had. And you said like you loved those sort of early two thousands. Um, and you don't see is like correct me if if uh, if I'm misquoting you, but it seemed like you said about you don't see that same passion and love of what they're doing in some of the guys in Supercross today. What do you think about the MotoGP paddock? Do you see a similar thing there? I, I think the, the the easiest comparison is Valentino. You know, look at look at Valentino maybe ten years ago. You know, hopping all over the world trying to dodge taxes and and things <laughs> like that. And to now na- to now, you know, being one hundred percent based in Tavulia, um, building the ranch. And then building, you know, the VR6, uh, VR46 uh, Academy. And I think that that is, it's really, I think in my opinion, and I may be wrong, but I think in my opinion, it's kept Valentino competitive and racing these past five years longer than maybe what he would have if he had not have had that. It, it just, he has created an outlet um, to, to keep it fresh and fun for him. Um, but yet, giving back and he probably doesn't look at it as giving back because I can probably tell you that he's probably using it more as a tool to him and bringing all these young people in to, you know, to rejuvenate him and to learn new skills off of the kids. And, and I think that in a, in a, in a, in a weird way, I probably see that he's using it as a tool for him than what he even thinks about giving it back at this point. Maybe he goes, Oh yeah, I'm giving back. But it was really just you, you used everything as a tool. And and I feel like I had to do a lot of the same things. You know, I had my own facility in Florida. Um, I loved, you know, bringing in new people and new kids and, and getting to interact. And you see them. And the days that you're like, oh, man, it's just, you know, you maybe have a little motiva- less motivation to go burn out a 35-minute <laughs> moto 
or you know doing 20 laps supercross of you know replicating your your race strategy and things like that there's days where you just don't feel like doing it but when you've got you know three four ten other kids there that are like just bouncing off the walls and they're (laughs) exciting suddenly you don't think about it and you just do and and suddenly this this work that was once a time upon a time work now it just becomes a little bit more natural a little bit more easy Mm -hmm. to do a little bit more fun to do and that's that's been racing for me i just love it you know like really my decision to step away was i did some car racing last year and it was the first time that i started to go to bed at night and not think how am i going to ride my bike faster and better tomorrow how are we going to work on the bike settings to make me more comfortable tomorrow it started to be okay i'm analyzing data in my head on you know breaking points and figuring out from the dirt to the pavement mm. and all these kinds of things and that was the turning point for me um but i love it i still love racing um the little things that i do not enjoy anymore is practice and qualifying like <laughs> it's just and 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 you see that you know valentino sometimes now misses q2 and when you you know and it's really just a one lap thing and these kids are so special at this one lap all out just turn your brain off and just produce one lap and for me i that's not exciting for me anymore like i don't find that fun like i like to go out get up the speed slowly and worry about when we turn the lights on and then we turn the lights back on um that we go racing and and so therefore if you could insert me to the main event uh and miss all the other stuff i i would race another couple of years um but that's that's not possible you're not putting a, putting a good word with someone like can you just see me through to the main event a few times all right all right maybe i need to create my own series with the exemptions for past champions or something <laughs> i think that would work i mean i would totally watch that if you just had if you had a series where it's like right it's four races and it's literally just turn up and race. I think that could also be incredibly exciting, whether it's on asphalt or something like Supercross Motocross, because then you just got to bring it immediately. <laughs> yeah, totally. Exactly. Um, yeah. So on on that, like, I wanted to to also mention about um, sort of the intensity which the riders sort of put themselves through in that, because as you mentioned earlier, it's not how you know back in the mid 2000s it was you're a motorsports athlete you don't have to be down the gym all the time and and this and that you know riding the bike is more important what do you make of that side of it as well because you know i'm sure well it's actually the big mission i won't ask you what ask you what uh what valentina's told you about it but nobody really knows what valentina's training regime you know he goes down the gym apparently he's a good runner but no one actually knows his top secret but whereas all these other kids it's like instagram down the gym and stuff like that all the time you know and that's and i don't know that i yeah. something that i've i've never witnessed it myself um but we're saying that and and i didn't i didn't purposely do it uh in some cases but then in a lot of cases you like like i see new generation people like a lot of their videos it's all built around them in the gym them doing their workouts and things like that um if anybody comes and they want to do like uh, the first thing they say, Oz, we want to do this, this, and then I'm like, well, no, I don't really show that part of it. Like you do that with everyone else. So I don't, I almost shy away from it because everybody does it. Mm. Um, and maybe that's a, you know, something that he's also doing. So, um, but I think that that's something, obviously he keeps that close to himself and, um, 
I've never seen Valentino fade because he's out of shape or, you know, he shows up at the first test and he's, you know, overweight. I don't know that Valentino could ever be overweight, but that's impossible. God bless him. I'm not the same. <laughs> My off season, I'm like, oh, geez, now I got to get back into shape. But um, yeah, that's it's it's interesting, and I and I love that because we don't know. And then so therefore, there's always the what if? Does he work out? Does he not work out? You know. And um, but I I'm willing to bet that he probably worked his butt off in certain areas that no one knows about. It, it, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? And also with social media, like we mentioned earlier, that element as well, because what you're showing fans is also now what all of your rivals can see all the time. And one of the World Superbike guys that I know kind of jokes about that quite a lot because doesn't really post that much about that. And we're kind of teasing about it and said, yeah, but when we get to Park Fermi, which one of us is out of breath? Because it's not me. And I think it's really interesting how for some people they seem to use that almost as a psychological thing, like, oh, look, I'm in the gym all the time. Fear me. And then some of them just nothing about it, like Valentino. Although Valentino has a certain psychological weapon anyway from just seeing that 46 and knowing who it is. (laughs) (laughs) But it it is an interesting thing. Yeah, no, it is. And if it didn't happen on the gram, it didn't happen, right? So, exactly. Or Strava. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely. Uh, and I, you know, and my my Strava is private. I don't post a Strava, so I, I don't know. I, I and it's funny because I can see everybody else's what they're doing, and you know, and what they they probably know, and they just don't care. But like, it's funny, you know. A lot of people have heart rate monitors connected to it, you know, power you know power wattage things and you can see it you know it's like okay you're doing work but you're also doing a lot of work so maybe you know in some ways they're doing too much and then there's some people that are not doing it enough mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting and if you're smart enough you can pick and choose and see what you see and and you can learn things always that's okay so something i wonder if you could articulate for me there because something i'm really fascinated by is how and i don't know what you you see it in whether you see it in supercross or not but motogp's got its own language right we spoke about it with neil hodgson motogp's got its own language where the riders use these sort of set phrases to describe how they're feeling with the bike how they're feeling on their form in themselves etc and you don't get any more details and i think it's part of that like mental game about you know, I don't want to give anything away because someone's going to use it against me on the track. But have you ever really, when you've been racing against somebody else, known like, oh, I know he's had a bit of a shocking training regime this week, so I'm going to use that against him in this turn. Is that is that a real thing or is it just more well, general feel? When you start getting, when you start breaking it down at the highest, highest level, um, even myself, like I'm, I'm a big enough fan that I watch every practice. I watch the debriefs. Um, just this because is why they're, we say expert, like yeah. you, you own that name. <laughs> they're, uh, you know, they're interesting to me because as a as an athlete that, that that has done this for twenty plus years, you can read between the lines, and and though they all use very similar things, um, you can tell when Mark's in trouble. You can tell when Valentino's in trouble. Uh, you can tell when they're saying they're in trouble and they're not in trouble, um, and that that for me is fun you know like i i love that part of it um and so there's always there's always ways where you can read between the lines and you know you look at the facial expressions you look at you know certain things and um i've always been jealous in the fact that in MotoGP, it's it's a lot of the time it's the bike right like you it's generally accepted 
that if you have an off day, you just missed the settings, like the settings weren't correct or you chose the wrong tire. In motocross, if we say, oh, yeah, I just missed the setting, you, it is so frowned upon and you are talking <laughs> really? nothing but you're talking crap on the bike, you're talking crap on the team. And so with my love of MotoGP and probably me paying such attention and whenever I get asked the question on like, hey, what happened today on good or bad? It's like, hey, you know, like I felt really good, but we missed a little here or there. Like you actually be detailed and you tell real, real information and then suddenly it gets used against you. And so I've always been I've always been jealous that MotoGP gets to speak a little bit more openly about some of the struggles that they're actually really having. Um, That's so funny. You know, because it's like in motocross and supercross, if a rider is having issues um, or they're having like a slow slump to the season, it, it's never it's always the rider. It's never like, oh, like they're just a little bit lost on settings and the bike's just not correct, you know, not in the window. Um, where you guys, it's the opposite. If if Mark's struggling, you know, a couple of years ago when the Honda was really, really challenging, it was generally accepted that the Honda wasn't a great bike and that Mark was that good, but yet the bike wasn't good. And whenever he had a bad one, it was the bike. And I'm like, man, I wish we could, <laughs> wish we could use that same excuse. I've never heard that, that before. Pretty interesting as well, because like, was it? It wasn't last year, was it? Was it the year before? Like I said, I'm before. really struggling now in lockdown with Eight. remembering. <laughs> it was two weeks ago. Years of my life. Yeah. When um, when Yamaha even had a couple of their guys do like an extra media debrief <laughs> to explain the problems that they'd had in development or what was going wrong when Valentino and Maverick were especially struggling. That was pretty unheard of even as well to that level. It seems crazy. Like, I think it's a very respectable thing to do that, especially within some of these Japanese companies where it's a little bit different to an Italian attitude where it's like, oh, just say this, say this. But to officially say to people like, yeah, like we've made these mistakes and no, it's not our riders. That must seem even crazier to you, even more than just a rider being a little bit freer in a debrief. <laughs> totally. And just, you know, to know the pride the Japanese have um, is it that's always so surprising for me to see. Um, and it, it, it might be it might be the nature of the beast and the fact that we are selling and racing a production built motorcycle. And so for the most part what I race is very close to what the general public races where for you guys, it's 100% prototype. So it really does, you know, you're not selling that prototype to the world though. You're selling the brand Yamaha, Honda, Ducati, whatever. Um, so maybe that's the, that's where the, the difference that's true. is. You're is not that. telling the general public, Oh, there's this thing on the bike you can buy that we yeah. don't think is the best. <laughs> <laughs> that's Correct. pretty interesting. So, so maybe, Maybe that's the that's the difference that you know that we miss we miss here on the on the motorcycle side on the dirt bike side. That's super fascinating. Um, we have got one more thing which we'd like to do. We do we have a quick fire round which we do at the end of every episode. But before we do, you're the first person we've ever asked this to. But Chad, you're such an expert and you've got so many thoughts on MotoGP. Is there anything we haven't talked about which you've always thought I really want to talk about this with someone about MotoGP? Uh, Sorry to put you on the spot, I, but like I we I talk like MotoGP is in a it's a daily conversation with really? you know, my 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 mechanics, my people, my friends. Uh, mm-hmm. You know whether it's talking to Jack or talking to you know some of Valentino guys. Like I I'm always interested. I'm always following it, and um, I'm most interested right now to see what happens with Dovi and 
in Valentina. What right. happens with uh, with new contracts there? Hmm. I, I think the obvious is probably going to happen, um, but it's it's an interesting subject. I think the Dovey one is less of a gamble or less of a question. I think that what Valentino does and how that plays out with does he take his crew, does he not take his crew, um, the restrictions and the things, and uh, it's interesting to me on how all that plays out. You quite like the rider market then. <laughs> I do. I like the rider market. Um, it didn't really change up as much as like you would like it to. Um, it surprises me massively that pole is going to switch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, same. That's, I don't know. I don't see, I, I'm confused by that one. Like I don't, like I, I see it as a sidewards step or even a step down. When you have a, when you're the dominant guy that can ride one bike and then you're the bike is for the most part being built around you over the last couple of years, it's, I'm surprised that they would have been Honda really must've wanted him in my opinion, you know, like it seems surprising that KTM or something's happened at KTM that they no longer believed in him or something's happened, you know, which I obviously I don't have that insight, but mm-hmm. from, from the outside looking in and how I view it, it's, it's probably the biggest surprise uh, of recent times. I think it is. And as well, because that KTM has been a bike that you need to ride like Paul rides, it's going to be pretty interesting seeing what happens also with the kind of Danny Pedrosa influence in testing, who doesn't particularly ride like that, although obviously he was successful on the Honda where there's a few similarities. I don't know. I, I think KTM's super exciting. We got yeah. to go to the factory for a pre-event, and even if they've not quite got to the level that they'd expected by now, the progress that they've made and some of the decisions that they've stuck behind, I think it's just such an interesting thing to watch because it's not just looking for a tenth. It's looking to make these huge leaps that a lot of factories have made over, like, two decades. And, but, and yeah, you know, and, and, you're, and what I respect the most is a lot of what you're doing is in the public eye, you know, when yeah. you, when you do make a half second better motorcycle, you're, you're, you know, you're applauded. Right. But when you mess it up and you, you get it wrong, you're also, you get beat up. Um, and I think the commitment that they've shown is, is awesome. Um, we are getting to the point where they're so close now, you know, like they've come so far, you have to get it wrong, unfortunately. And so when they get it wrong, they will probably, unfortunately, it'll suck for them, but they will learn more for what they get wrong. And it will be quick, how quickly they can then learn from that and put it into, into thing. And obviously they have more concessions and things that they can do than the other teams can do. So that's, that always is helpful for them. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm pretty sure most of the factors will probably take that. They're, they're well into the mindset with all their experience. Okay, if we've had a, we've made a mistake, we've got wrong. Well, that's actually going to teach us something for for the future. That's just sort of the, I guess, the mantra of every sort of success, really, isn't it? I suppose it's yeah, the classic it overused trope, though, isn't it? Yeah. Like everyone says that all the time, but it's like, yeah, we everyone repeats it a lot, and like even on like you know yoga style Instagram pages, it's all about that vibe. But it's actually true. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, like when you're when your bike's three seconds off the pace, it, it's it's seemingly it's not uh, by any means, but it's seemingly you can easily take a second, a half second. You know, but when you start getting to that one second off the pace, that that is, you know, what what these guys have been doing for decades now, Honda, 
Yamaha, Ducati, Suzuki. Um, that's where it becomes challenging. And, and that's probably what I respect most about what KTM's doing is just grinding away, grinding away and, and seemingly not real scared to throw uh it's kind of like it's an old school way of thought you know like what we used to see in the old days and the fact that when you want to win you throw money at it and you throw equipment at it and and it's fun to see that that come full circle and seeing um you know that everyone's pretty refined when you look at a ducati from year to year or a honda or a yamaha or suzuki they really it's your it's minute changes and when you see ktm swinging for the fences um (laughs) for me that it just brings it back a little bit old school and and that that for me is it's a really exciting um you know to be a part of the sport and see that that still does exist you don't see that sort of financial attitude since the economic crash i suppose and even more so not it's not just motor gp but when they were having their troubles last year with the motor 2 project it was chassis 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 just like how about like three or four new ones in a box at some point in one test mid-season like what they even i think someone told me they they, they did a uh, they even changed the 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 way they were naming the chassis to like point like 3.2 and stuff like that because it was something ridiculous i don't know if that was actually it but yeah that, that sort of financial commitment's enormous yeah it's brilliant no it is it's just exciting that's what i i like that part of sport doesn't matter what sport it is i just love you know the commitment that you can see from the outside looking in and when you see it from the outside you know that on the inside there's just so much going on and that that excites me awesome should we definitely do agree. the kenwood quick fire fran let's Oof. do it would you like to introduce it I would. I would. It would be a pleasure. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, at the end, we normally do a quick fire round. We have word association or quick fire questions. We've been keeping some of the word association for the non-native speakers, since I think it's a little bit less challenging to answer quickly. Um, basically, just our sponsor is Kenwood, who also gives us the radios in the Motor GP paddock that keep us all connected. Shout out, they sponsor guys. this part. Shout out for them. And yeah, it's just simple things, you know, one or the other, this or that. What's your favorite place or brand of underwear? All the normal. <laughs> um, so, Matt, <laughs> if you want to take it away, let's okay. go. Well, the classic question is Chad Reed, coffee or tea? Oh, coffee. Good choice. Your favorite MotoGP track? Ooh. As a fan, I love Mizano because you can walk around it. Mm. You know, like it's it's it it's the closest thing that I've experienced at a MotoGP event to Supercross. And that you know, like most of it's all built up uh, grass, you know, hills. Um, they're not just grandstands; they're actually grass hills, and you can literally walk the whole track. And it's like it's I like that part of it. Where's your, where's your favorite place to race Supercross? Favorite place to race Supercross? It's it's hard to go past Anaheim. Um, Anaheim is always it just you kind of always expect the unexpected at Anaheim, and that's that's what's exciting about it. And hmm. um, what about I think we might know the answer to this one. Your all time <laughs> racing hero on asphalt or the dirt side of it? Ooh. Um, I have so many. Uh, Go, tell us, tell us them all. I, I would say, I would say that my first hero ever was really Mick Doohan. 
Um, and then it, it, you know, then it, it shifted to Jeremy McGrath because I wanted to come to America and race supercross. Um, and then obviously Valentino was always, you know, somebody who I looked up to. He was a couple of years older than I am. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of, of, of all of them. I always hate naming individuals because, uh, geez, some of my, I would consider my friend being Valentino and Mark and I like both of them for very different reasons and yet they hate each other now so it always is awkward <laughs> i think as, as supercross guys because all the motor gp riders love supercross you guys are all stuck in an awkward crossfire between guys who might not like each other and they all love you and you're like i like you too but you two hate each yeah. other so we can never hang out that's a shame um, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, so, somehow I, somehow i've been able to keep keep a, a common ground <laughs> that's good uh next one then what's your best win Best win, ooh, I, I, my go-to is always uh, Daytona Supercross 2005. Um, I love it because it was considered Ricky Carmichael's backyard. Um, he was, for the most part, I think, undefeated there until I uh, beat him. And it was just one of those races that we went at it, went at it, and, and finally I was able to, to win. What's the hardest thing to adapt to moving from Australia to Europe and then to the States? Uh, moving from Australia to Europe was a huge move. Uh, 18 years old, knew nothing, knew, you know, back in those days, it wasn't Euro. It was everybody had their own currency. <laughs> you know, you had to have different visas for different countries and, and things like that. So that was challenging. Um, also, I went from living from mum and dad never paying a cell phone bill or any bill and then having to do all that on my own. Um, and then coming to America, it seemed quite easy because then it was, you know, coming to a country that was open. It was just States, not countries. Um, everybody spoke English. So yeah. And then I, but I would say the hardest thing about America from a little Australian kid, um, was I went to California and I was more in the desert part of California, not by the beach. And so I felt always, uh, like I was literally living in the desert and as a kid growing up in Aussie I always felt like I was I was always around the beach and you know beautiful white sand beaches interesting cool That's an interesting bit, of, story. bit of a change yeah um, who taught you the most about riding motorcycles Ooh, I would say obviously my dad was the, a big a big part of my uh, you know teaching me through my kids uh, my youth um, I have a cousin that's five years older than me who was multiple time Australian champion um, and I would say he he was the one um, he was five years so I was basically getting this playbook of five years ahead of me I was a big sponge I seen everything he did good and bad um, and so therefore I, I, I took that on and, and learned a lot from him that's cool pretty useful almost like a, a kind of oh, this is one thing we've heard from the marquez brothers with alex being basically like well yeah you can just watch what he does and then uh, essentially know what not to do at least <laughs> it's um, probably why it's probably why alex is more scared than mark <laughs> he, sees it all, he's, he sees it all playing out and he's like oh man <laughs> very true uh, what about a favorite moto gp race Ooh, favorite MotoGP race. Uh, I would say there's so many, but one that sticks out um, with being a Yamaha rider at the time, um, Valentino's first win on a Yamaha. Um, you know, like he always did something unique and cool, and that was what I always look for post, you know, win. And him, 
you know, kind of sitting there, taking a moment, um, you know, kind of showing the world that, hey, I'm that good. Um, <laughs> that, that, that was brave. And I think uh, that that's one that always sticks out for me. I, like, I think in his book, the, the autobiography, there's a cool bit on that where it says that everyone thought that he was crying with the emotion, but he was actually sat there laughing because he couldn't yeah. believe he pulled it off. Right. <laughs> I really right. like that. Great story. <laughs> um, what is the best advice to master a whoop section? Ooh. See, whoops for me, I've been doing them ever since I was nine, ten years old with my cousin, what I just said about being five years ahead of me. Um, the tracks that I was always riding were always built for him, and I had to just basically adapt and ride <laughs> ride to that level. Um, but I would say that building up um, smaller is better in this case, and just, just learn the technique. Once you have the technique, I feel like you can take on big, small, different shapes and sizes, rutted, not rutted. Um, but the technique is so important to learn. Um, and that's, that's probably the hardest part. Cool. I think you lost me for a second there. Oh yeah, you're back. <laughs> I'm back. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, oh no. <laughs> uh, where, next, where were we? Where were we? Oh, the whoop section. It? Yeah, it's you now. <laughs> Um, okay, I am back just in time. Um, have you ever bought anything which now you look at and think, why on earth did I buy that? Ooh. I'm sure that there's so many things, but I always believe that what you do and the choices you make are in the moment choices and that will probably made sense for some reason or another at that point. Um, so looking back and frowning on it, I feel like you just look back and go, okay, maybe that wasn't a great decision to buy that or purchase that or do that. Um, so then you learn going forward. So I don't know that I have a particular thing that I regret, but more just learning. I think that everything negative that you do is always a learning. Like it always that. turns positive at some point. That's, that's, a, that's a good philosophy, always the best. Um, okay, so last one then. What is one thing everybody should know before moving to the other side of the world? <laughs> Uh, it's not always you're not always supported from the people that you would think you would have support from uh, in my case uh, when I left uh, my mum and dad were excited about me taking on the world but they weren't necessarily excited about me doing it the way that I wanted to do it um, so be careful on the people that you love and the people that you think love you. Um, and then the decisions that they make, because nine times out of 10, they make decisions based on fear always because they're fearful for you to do all these things. So I think that as if you're like I was at 18 years old and you have this big, crazy idea of taking on the world, just go with it and, and, and trust it, um, and and just yeah and kind of more like live you know don't regret anything just live for the moment and make the best decision in that moment um to get you from a to b and that that's what i'm most proud about awesome well great answer that's cool. i feel like that's that's good advice because yeah. i have this even just with my dad and like i studied languages at university and i almost studied chinese because he was like no that's the better idea 
Like, that's the better idea for the modern world. And it took me ages to be like, that's not the better idea because I will hate it and I will fail it. So I will not actually end up with any sort of skill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and sometimes you're... you do need to have that faith in yourself, I think. <laughs> you do. You do. And so therefore, I just think, you know, what you think is right is probably right <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah. well that is uh, the kebble quickfire and, and chad thank you so much for joining us i suppose the best part is and i just realized it for when you mentioned that you the laguna you flew in on the saturday night you've probably only ever flown into emergency race on the saturday night apart from mizano or right so you've probably not done a full weekend that often you're gonna have to do loads now yeah a few a few times laguna uh kind of fell on an off week hmm. um not often maybe once or twice um but yeah like always indie and and for sure always like austin is so challenging because uh for the first couple of years we we're in seattle which seattle is on the complete opposite side of the country it's at least a six hour flight to get to uh uh, to get into um, what you call it, Austin. So we always had to take a red eye and then it was like, okay, what time does the red eye get us in? Um, and so, yeah, it's always been a challenge, but a challenge worth taking. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it is funny. Like if you took a six hour flight from most places in Europe, you can reach like Central Africa and Russia. <laughs> you can make it from Europe to America. <laughs> oh, that's true, actually. Yeah, you can yeah. pretty much make it to New York. <laughs> Nuts. Nuts. So, yeah, that is crazy. Exactly. But... So, yeah, I'm, I'm jealous you guys get to go to Jerez. I was there for the World Championship for Lamborghini race last year. So, I oh, loved yeah. the area. I got to go there for a test. Then I got to go for the race. And so, yeah, it's a beautiful place to go, and uh, on there on the by the beach and everything. I think, so uh, you guys, you guys have fun. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna have we'll fun, try. I'm sure. But we're gonna like lobsters by the end of it because it is hot it is. this time of the year. Yeah. So let's see. It is very, um, very hot. Exactly. Hey, we're doing the outro uh, after we did take one of the intro. That's super impressive. Can we do take one of the outro as well? Let's hope so. Things to go and look uh, for on the interweb now that you've listened to that episode. Chad's favourite win, what he mentioned there, 2005 Daytona, one of his uh, beating Ricky Carmichael in his own backyard. Super impressive. He also mentioned, in case you missed it, the 1997 Australian GP, Mick doing crashing out at Turn 1. I think there was actually a recent video feature on that by MotoGP.com, so chuck it into, into Google, I'm sure you'll find something and also a big thanks to shane uh shane Dorr from supercross for setting this up again so here's a little shout out for shane uh, and go and check out all of supercross's tribute videos to chat on their youtube channel since he had that one last ride in salt lake city did i say that right salt lake city i did yes I, felt like I think bit... you said Salt, but we'll Salt Lake, Yeah, Salt Lake City. Oh my goodness, it's been a long day. <laughs> um, but Fran, this is the last time we're recording remotely from the UK. How sad. It is. If everything goes to plan, if we're allowed back into our country of residency, <laughs> uh, then hopefully the next time you see us, we'll definitely be sat next to each other, whether it will be our house or our office in the background remains to be decided. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed all of these. We've got a few things lined up already for once we're back on site in Hareth, obviously starting in a few weeks now. Yes, where the next episode—the next episode is not actually next week. From uh, well, it depends which one, which episode this is. If this is the final one before <laughs> we actually go race, if this is the final episode before we go racing, the next episode is not next week. It is the week after. So we're not having an episode straight after the first race that we have at Hareth. We're having an episode being released the Monday after the second race in Hareth, the Andalusian Grand Prix. Can't tell you who it's with yet. 
but um, you can well, you can be absolutely sure it's definitely going to be someone in the paddock because of the medical protocol. Um, but, <laughs> but we don't know yet from the paddock. But we, we do have an idea. But, um, yeah, we do have an idea. If our emails and pleas are responded to, hopefully it should be another interesting person that everyone knows a lot about on the outside, but maybe doesn't usually sit down for a longer interview. So we'll see how it goes. Beautiful. Well, and then now we've said that watch, it'll be like Jack Miller giving us another generous 45 minutes. And it'll be really obvious that whoever we were intending to ask said no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. So, well, without further ado, if this is the final episode that we publish before we actually go racing, see you in two weeks. If it's not, see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>